And as you guys turn to Hebrews chapter 7, let me just remind you that this uh, particular uh, book, this letter that is written in our New Testament is written to a group of uh, Messianic Jewish believers. And so these would be those who grew up in a traditional Orthodox Jewish household. They had all the trappings and traditions of growing up that way. And yet, as uh, they were enlightened by the Scripture, as the Old Testament was revealed to them, they began to believe that Jesus was the Messiah. They accepted them. They, they became Christians as they accepted Christ as their Savior. So as they looked to the law and they looked to their inability to complete it, what they saw was that they uh, were in need of a Savior. And that Savior was none other than the Anointed One, the Messiah, the Jesus, the Christ. Now, as they transitioned and they became Messianic believers, they would have then been likely rejected by their friends and family. Because not only were they turning their back on just simply a religion, it wasn't just that, it was their very livelihood. Everything that they would have done would have revolved around the Jewish calendar, would have revolved around the Torah, would have revolved around meeting in the temple. And so they were not only turning away from just simply the law, they were actually turning away from their friends and their family. And so you can imagine the kind of turmoil and persecution and the anger that would have ensued. And the the reality of the tradition that they were in is it was steeped in belief in the prophets and angels and Moses and the priesthood. And what the writer is going to go to great lengths of, what he's already done so far, is to say, look, those things weren't bad. They just weren't the best. They, they all pointed to our need for a Savior. The fulfillment of all the law and all the prophets was in the person of Christ. And so the theme of the book of Hebrews is Jesus is better. And it's not that Jesus has his nose up in the air, that he's so much better in that kind of way, but that he is superior. That for each one of these different uh, traditions that were in their Hebrew culture, he is pointing out that Jesus is better than those. So, this leads us to Hebrews chapter 7. Now, before we go there, this chapter is a direct reference to what took place in Genesis chapter 14. So, before we make our way that direction, I'm going to go back to the Old Testament and give you a little bit of background on it. I'll pick up in Genesis chapter 12 where we see Abraham being called by God away from his family. He lived at that time in an area what is likely modern-day Iraq. He was called out of this area, Ur of the Chaldees is what we know in Scripture. And God gave him a tremendous promise. He says in Genesis 12 that I will make you a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great. And through you and all your family, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. I mean, tremendous promise that Abraham is given. And so he leaves almost doing everything God said. He didn't leave his family entirely. He took his father and he also took his nephew Lot along the way. And so as Abraham makes his way towards the land of promise that God said, I'm going to give you in chapter 13, uh, he has been so blessed that even his own family members, like his nephew Lot, have become blessed. Lot became wealthy just through association uh, with Abraham. And so in chapter 13, Lot, uh, he got a little too big for his britches. And so as he is uh, becoming wealthy, he looks around and he says, there's not enough room for both of us to raise our, our herds together. He desired a land of his own. And so Abraham gave to Lot his choice. He says, take a look around, uh, pick the direction you want to go, the spot you want to go, and I'll go the opposite way. 
And so Lot lifted up his eyes and he looked and he saw the, the plains of the Jordan River. Beautiful, green, lush. The cities of Sodom and Gomorrah were down in those beautiful plains and Lot desired to go that way. And so he did uh, just that. He pitched his tent towards Sodom is what we're told. Now, what transpires then by the time we get to chapter 14 in Genesis is there was an uprising. There were four kings that decided to overthrow five kings that all resided in this land where Lot lived. And the four kings overthrew the five. They took captive people from these different cities, including uh, Abraham's nephew Lot and his family and all of his possessions. And so this leads us to chapter 14 where Abraham gets word that his nephew Lot has been taken captive along with his family and all his possessions. Now, uh, this fascinating story that happens is Abraham goes into action. And what I like about this is so often we read through these Old Testament Bible stories and we have Abraham as a patriarch, as this old man just sitting in a corner. But in this story, he looks more like Liam Neeson from Taken. Like he's got a particular set of skills and he goes out with 318 of his own trained soldiers. He's got a whole military at his disposal and they lay down an Old Testament hiney whooping on these four kings. I mean, they take no prisoners. They bring back Lot. They bring back all his possessions. All his family is unharmed and they show up victorious back on the scene. And this is where we arrive In Genesis chapter 14, verse 18, And then Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought out bread and wine, and he was the priest of God Most High. And he blessed him, speaking of Abraham, and said, Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him, speaking of Abram, gave him, Melchizedek, a tithe of all. And so we now have the backstory that leads us to chapter 7 of Hebrews, where we read in verse 1, For this Melchizedek, the king of Salem, priest of Most High God, who met Abraham, returning from the slaughter of the kings, and blessed him, to whom also Abraham gave a tenth part of all, first being translated king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace. Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. And so in our story, the writer has communicated that Jesus Christ is a high priest in the line of Melchizedek. And so we now get background on who this character that just pops up on the scene in Genesis chapter 14 to bless Abraham is. And we're first told his name, uh, Melchizedek. It's actually a a compound word of two Hebrew names, uh, Melech, meaning king, and Zedek, meaning righteousness. So his name literally translates king of righteousness. But then also he was the king of Salem. The word Salem might sound familiar to you because it's very close to the Hebrew word shalom, meaning peace. So he is the king of righteousness. He's the king of Salem, which is likely ancient Jerusalem. And he is now presenting before Abraham. He comes to him, he approaches him as the priest of El Elyon, God Most High. And 
He is a king and a priest holding both of these offices at the same time. Now, why is that significant? Well, because throughout the Old Testament and in the law, uh, kings were not allowed to also hold the office of priest. It was strictly forbidden. In fact, in 2 Chronicles chapter 26, uh, a king of Judah, one of the good kings in uh, the nation of Judah, they only had five out of 20, but he was one of the good guys. He makes this decision. He gets himself puffed up and he decides to go into the temple and actually offer incense, which was a, a role only to be held by the priests. And as King Uzziah goes in to offer incense, uh, leprosy breaks out on his forehead. He is completely then taken out of the scene. He is never allowed to be around his family again because he was not allowed to perform priestly duties as a king. Which makes us wonder, it causes us to question, who is this Melchizedek guy? This guy who is a king and a priest all at the same time. And Hebrews chapter 7 gives us insight. In verse 3, he is made like the Son of God. Now, there are lots of theories about who Melchizedek is, so I'll simply share with you my vantage point, and that is he is a Christophany. That is an Old Testament appearance of Jesus Christ himself. Now, why do I feel that way? A couple things to just point to, and you can dig into this a little deeper if you'd like. But notice with me in verse 18, he presented Abram with bread and wine, the very elements of communion. He comes to him to take communion with Abram. Now, not only that, but Jesus in his own words, John chapter 8, he's being questioned by the Pharisees about him and his position. And so he goes directly to Abraham because they loved, they venerated Abraham. And so Jesus speaking to these Jewish Pharisees about Abraham, he says in verse 56, your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day. And he saw it and was glad. And then the Jews said to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham? And in verse 58, And Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. The covenant name of Yahweh is what he says. Ego imi in the Greek. He says, Before Abraham even existed, I am. But he said, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. What day? When did Abraham and Jesus actually meet? When would he have seen him? And it's very likely that here in Genesis 14, Abraham got to meet Jesus in the flesh in the Old Testament. So, exciting stuff. Uh, very cool to dig into. And some of you are asking, what in the world does that have to do with me? Like, how? what am I going to glean from these first three verses in the text? Uh, something of practical application that I want to point out that the writer specifically notes. He says that his name is first translated king of righteousness and then king of Salem, meaning king of peace. That order in the Bible always has a meaning. There's a reason why God uh, ordered things in the Bible a specific way. And I believe the reason in this spot is because um, you must first have righteousness if you hope to have peace that we desire so badly in our lives to have peace i just want peace in this situation and yet what the world says is you're going to have to compromise if you're going to want to have peace in this area you're going to need to compromise but what scripture says is you don't need to compromise you need to be consecrated you need to be willing to give everything you have over to the 
Prince of Peace, the King of Righteousness. Because your righteousness, it ain't good enough. The, on your best day, what Isaiah says is, our righteousness is as filthy rags. It's not going to cut it. And guess what? We all know it. Deep down inside, we all know the best I can provide is not good enough to appear before a holy God. And so I must have the Prince of Peace, the King of Righteousness, who promises through simple belief in Him to give me a robe of righteousness. So I can have righteousness through Christ Jesus. But what the world constantly wants to throw at us is compromise and you'll have peace. Compromise and you'll have peace. And what we know is over and over again when we do that, there is no peace. This is why, in part, the Apostle Paul says in Galatians chapter 5, verse 9, that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. That when we are willing to take on a little bit of compromise, willing to let a little bit of leaven, a little bit of corruption, that's ultimately what leaven does. It begins to break things down. It ferments, right? And so it, as it breaks down, it breaks down the entire lump. So too it is in our lives. A little bit of leaven can cause corruption in the entire lump. Now, continuing on in verse 4. Now consider how great this man was, to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. And so the author is now writing to communicate, think about Abraham. Right, the greatest man you guys can come up with in your Old Testament. And yet here's Abraham. He is giving a tenth. He's giving a tithe of his hard-earned spoils. I mean, Abram went out. He went to battle. He went for it. He brought Lot back. This was his blood, sweat, and tears. And yet here he is, and he is willing to give a tithe. Now, what you all know, if you've been coming here any length of time, is that uh, I don't talk about tithing. Not at all. Unless... It's brought up in Scripture. And so today is your lucky day. We're going to bring up tithing because here it is brought up. Now, likely, uh, many of you have heard this before, that tithing is only required in the law. It's an Old Testament concept. But here's a couple things to consider. Uh, notice Abraham tithed. But Abraham was around. He existed 400 years before the law. So is it truly an Old Testament concept or is it a God concept that has always been around? Now, when it comes to the New Testament, is there a direct mandate in the New Testament that says, you shall do this? And the answer is no. But when you look to the Sermon on the Mount, as Jesus is speaking and teaching what he says in Matthew chapter 6, verses 2 and again in verse 3, he doesn't say, if you give. He says, when you give. It's implied. It's understood by the reader that giving is a part of our uh, worship. Notice this with Abraham. And this is why it's important. Even if it makes me uncomfortable to talk about tithing, or if we don't discuss it, I'm not doing you a service, please understand that giving is an act of worship. It's actually a way that we can worship God no different than with our words. And in fact, more often than not, when we worship with our wallet, we're really doing it from our heart, right? Because where our treasure is, there is our heart also. And so it's an act of worship, but more than that, it's also an act of trust. It's trust to be able to give to God and say, I trust you're going to do what's right with this. Now, as we worship and as we give in that way, here's what hopefully you'll get to this mindset. 
It is realizing that everything I have is a gift from God. Everything I have is His. He put me in this position. It's all His. And so the way to truly look at it is, I'm the one that's blessed that He lets me keep 90%. I mean, I'm pretty fortunate. He, he could take it all. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. It's all His. He lets me get away with keeping 90. Now, one more place I want to take you in Scripture. Malachi chapter 3, verse 10. And this is worth reading simply because of this. This is the only place in the Bible where God says, test me, try me, give me a crack. Just see what happens. And what he says in verse 10 of Malachi 3, bring all the tithes into the storehouse that there may be food in my house. And try me now in this, says the Lord of hosts, if I will not open for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such a blessing that there will not be room enough to receive it. You cannot outgive God. You can try, but he can give more than you can ask, think, hope, or imagine. It's all his. And so God's encouragement here is, try me, test me, trust me in this. Now, verse 5. And indeed, those who are of the sons of Levi, who receive the priesthood, have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law. That is, from their brethren, though they have come, to, come from the loins of Abraham, but he whose genealogy is not derived from received tithes from Abraham, and blessed him who had the promises. Now beyond all contradictions, the lesser is blessed by the better. Here mortal men receive tithes, but there he receives them of whom it is witnessed that he lives. Even Levi, <clears throat> who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak, for he was still in the loins of his father then when Melchizedek met him. Now, what he is communicating here is that Jesus was not a Levite. He was not a son of Aaron, which all these guys are looking to and saying he can't be a priest unless he comes from the right genealogy. He had to have Levi genes in order to be a priest. So he, here's Jesus. He doesn't have Levi genes, but what he is communicating is the priests who represented God to the people and the people to God, they accepted tithes. They received tithes into themselves. And as they received tithes, people would look at them with honor. They would look to them uh, as ones who are well-respected in the community. So as they look at this and say they're uh, well-respected being a part of the temple and being those who can receive tithes, what he is noting is uh, Abraham gave tithes to Melchizedek. And Levi was in the loins of, he was a son of Abraham. So therefore, uh, Abraham gave tithes over to the one who has superiority to him. He was communicating superiority because the lesser always gives to the greater. That only makes sense, right? That the lesser would give over to the one who is greater. And his second point that he communicates here is that the better or the greater blesses the lesser. Notice with me back in verse 19 of Genesis 14 when we talked about that, that Abraham 
came out to meet Melchizedek and he said, blessed be Abram of God most high. He prayed a blessing over Abram because he was greater than him. It's no different than you as parents. If you take the opportunity, and I would encourage you to do this, uh, pray blessings over your children. Feel free to lay your hands on their head. I do this almost every night with our kids. I lay my hands on them and I just pray over them. Why? Because I've been given authority over them. Not that I'm better than them. I'm just uh, being given a responsibility as their father, as the patriarch of my family, to pray blessings over them. It wouldn't make sense if my kids came up and laid their hands upon my head and said, bless you, Father. Like that, that would make no sense. It would be completely backwards. And so the same is being communicated here, that Melchizedek had superiority over Abraham and therefore over all the Levitical priesthood. Now, Therefore, in light of all that, if perfection, verse 11, were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it the people received the law, what further need was there for another priest who should rise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron? And so the idea is if the law was perfect and really was able to completely save, then why would we need a replacement for the law and for the priests? Why would the order of Melchizedek even be necessary? Now, in the Old Testament, the priests would go into the temple and they would offer sacrifice. The offering was specifically called a a kafar in Hebrew. And what it literally means is a covering. They would offer a covering to cover over the sins of the people, but no different than a clothing covering. What you know is they're only temporary. They don't last. If you're like me, sometimes we outgrow our clothing, right? Eventually, they wear out. Eventually, we need a, a different clothing. We need it to be repeated over time. And here we see throughout the Old Testament history, over and over again, the Levites are performing sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice. Why? Because it, it was only a temporary covering. Now we read that in our Bible and we go, man, what a mess. Like, why do they have to kill these animals and the blood? and the, It's just gross. They're pouring it out. It's on the altar. And why would God have that be a requirement? And here's the reality. What God's trying to communicate is that our sin is that disgusting. It's bloody. It's hard to watch. It's hard to stomach because it kills. Sin kills. It's not sin because it's bad. It's sin because it's bad for us. It kills us. And so over and over again, these sacrifices would have to be made. Blood would have to be poured out because of the sin of the people. They had to do it over and over again. Verse 12, For the priesthood being changed of necessity, there is also a change of the law. Now this would have stretched their minds. If the priesthood wasn't good enough, if it couldn't cut it, then so too the law couldn't cut it. Immediately they would have been upset at hearing that. He's stretching them. Verse 13, For he, capital H, of whom these things are spoken, belongs to another tribe, from which no man has officiated at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning priesthood. And verse 15, it is, yet for, it is yet far more evident if in the likeness of Melchizedek there arises another priest 
who has come, not according to the law of fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. For verse 17, he testifies, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. A direct quote from Psalm 110. Now these uh, Jewish believers, remember, they grew up in this traditional uh, household. They would have said, you cannot be a priest from the tribe of Judah. That's the kingly tribe. It's not the priestly tribe. You would have had to come from the tribe of Levi and been a descendant of Aaron. And yet what the writer is saying is there is a greater priesthood. A, a greater priesthood that is spoken of in Scripture. A messianic psalm, Psalm 110, that says, You are a high priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Who, for Verse 18. For on the one hand there is an annulling of the former commandment, because of its weakness and unprofitableness. For the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there is the bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. You see, the law was perfect at what God intended for it to do. And that is to point out to us, we can't keep it. There are 613 commandments in the Old Testament. And we can't even keep the top ten list. We, we are flawed. We cannot keep it. And so the only conclusion is I need, I must needs a Savior. I need someone to stand in the gap. One to, to take on for me what I can't do for myself. And these high priests that offer the sacrifices, do you realize they had to offer a sacrifice for themselves too? Because they were sinners. They weren't perfect. And so they had to offer a sacrifice for themselves and then for the people. And then enter on the scene Jesus, who was without sin. And notice with me, he did not offer a kafar. He didn't offer a covering. Instead, he became our propitiation, the payment that turns away wrath. He's not in the covering sin business. He's in the turning sin completely away saving business. The payment for sin for all of eternity. This is the better priesthood that he is communicating here in Hebrews. Verse 20. And inasmuch as he was not made priest without an oath, for they have become priests without an oath, but he with an oath by him, who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will not relent, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So what he's saying here is, here's all these priests that get in line, and they become priests just simply by lineage. There was no swearing in process. They were simply uh, called worthy of doing the job because of who their daddy was, right? Now here's Jesus, who is sworn in by God himself. An incredible swearing in process, a promise by God. By verse 22, so much more Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant. Verse 23, also there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing. But he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. There were over 300 high priests throughout the Old Testament all the way up to the time of Jesus. Some were good, some were bad, no different than sometimes you get a good boss, right? Great guy, wonderful, oh, he's gone, we got a new one. Right? So the same thing is true. There were some good, some bad, but every one of them had one thing in common. 
they all died. All of them, without exception. They died. So they couldn't continue their priesthood because they died. They went on to the next life. And then we get to the Melchizedekian order. And here's Jesus. And what the writer's communicating is, there has been and will be only one priest. One who will live for all of eternity. It is a far better promise. And he says in verse 22, it's a better covenant, a surety, a payment, a promise that he will not fail. Verse 25 says, therefore, he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. If there is a line, a verse that I would encourage you to highlight, it would be this verse right here. Able to save to the uttermost. You've probably heard the phrase before that he is able to go to the guttermost to save the uttermost. I love the phrase. It's so very true, and yet it's not the focus of the passage. The focus of the passage is the uttermost. And it's not only did he save once and for all, but he saves continually. His payment wasn't just a one-time payment and then good luck for the rest of your life. It was a continual payment, a continual cleansing. What John would say in 1 John chapter 1, verse 9 is this, that if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Be ye being cleansed. It is a, I am cleansed, and yet I am being cleansed. Why? Because for many of us, no different than in Old Testament times, have we brought a sacrifice to the priest, a covering. You know how long that would have lasted for me? About as long as it took me to turn around and leave. I probably would have tripped over a rock. I would have become the cussing Christian because I had blood on my knee. And next thing you know, I got to go kill another animal. It's not good enough. I need to be cleansed and I need to be being cleansed. It's a continual process. This is what Jesus has done. And as a result, what we have seen throughout this book of Hebrews is he is now seated at the right hand of the Father. That's what chapter 1 told us. Romans chapter 8 says he is seated at the right hand of the Father forever making intercession for us. He is seated because the work is complete. He doesn't need to prove himself over and over again. I think that far too often we have this idea of Jesus making intercession that we mess up and then he has to stand up and go, Whoa, God! Hang on, Dad! I've got this one. He's taken care of by me. But that doesn't sound to me like a Savior who is seated. I believe he is seated because his wounds in his hands, the wounds in his feet, they do all the talking that he needs to do. He doesn't need to say another word. He just has to simply look upon his wounds and know that the sin has been paid for. The debt has been paid Notice with me in John chapter 20, as Thomas is doubting, he is doubting that Jesus is actually resurrected. And what Jesus says in verse 27, he said to Thomas, reach your finger here and look at my hands and reach your hand here and put it into my side. Do not be believing, but believe. I love that because he didn't say Thomas. 
Oh, we need to check your doctrine. We need to make sure that you understand all the Old Testament, understand all your scripture, get it all down pat. He just says, look at my wounds. Know that I've already taken care of it. And Thomas's response, the next verse was, my Lord and my God. He knew the debt had been paid. And so here's Jesus, the one who is able to save to the uttermost, is what verse 25 says. And the word uttermost means all, complete, total, eternal. That's the breadth and the depth that he can go to to take care of our sin problem. Verse 26, For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separated from sinners, and has become higher than the heavens. Verse 27, Who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices, first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. For this he did once and for all when he offered up himself. Verse 28, For the law appoints as high priests men who have weakness, but the word of the oath which came after the law appoints the son who has been perfected forever. You see, the system was flawed in the Old Testament because men were flawed. People were flawed. We're flawed. But here's Jesus, qualified to be our high priest. He is qualified, as we looked at a few weeks back, because he was chosen among men. He was able to fulfill that requirement. He was able to offer sacrifice, and in particular, the sacrifice of himself for our sins. And he was of the proper lineage in the line of Melchizedek. Now, you may wonder, why is all this important? Why did I need all that about Hebrew culture and tradition and Melchizedek? And here's a couple things that I want you to consider. First of all, it changes the way you view Jesus. It affects how we view him. You either have one of two positions likely to view him. Uh, first, a Levitical view. That he was a man, he laid down his life, he chose to sacrifice himself so uh, he could be salvation for me. He fulfilled requirements of the law that I could not. That's a wonderful way to look at Christ. But I want to challenge you, instead of looking, him, looking at him through a Levitical lens, look at him through the Melchizedekian lens. I think I made that word up, but the point is this. He lives to make intercession for me. He is a living Savior. He did not simply obtain salvation. He maintains salvation. We know what it's like to need to be maintained through this life, through this walk. And where Aaron was constantly working, his descendants were constantly sacrificing, Melchizedek is resting. He is no longer needing to work anymore. The debt has been paid. The work has been completed. And so what happens is when we look at it this way, all of a sudden my ability to approach God is no longer dependent upon my worthiness, but only upon his willingness. His willingness to go the distance, to go to the uttermost. And he is willing to meet me right where I'm at. Notice as Melchizedek came to Abraham. He went to the battleground. 
He went to where he was. He didn't tell Abram, hey, come see me. Come check me out. Bring sacrifices and tithes and offerings to me. No, he said, I'm going to go right where you're at. I'm going to get involved in your, in your situation. Please understand that. When you view him like that, he wants to be involved in your daily life. He wants to be involved. He wants to literally bring communion to you. We're going to take communion in just a moment, but God desires to commune with us on a daily basis, continually. He wants to tabernacle among us. I think it's fascinating to look through the Old Testament and realize God never asked for a temple. David wanted to give him a temple. Solomon built the temple, but what God asked for was a tabernacle. He said, I want to live among the people. John chapter 1 verse 14 says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us. That word means tabernacled. He became flesh because he wanted to live right where we are. He wanted to be involved in our situation. And as a result, we now get to take him everywhere we go. The tabernacle that Melchizedek serves in, that Christ Jesus serves in, is in each and every one of you. You're the tabernacle. And as a result, the people you get to interact with, your boss, your family, your kids, as you get the chance to interact, the Holy Spirit, the tabernacle of God, goes everywhere you go. And so, Father, we thank you and we praise you. What, what Paul writes to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 3 is that it is a mystery that God would manifest himself in the flesh. I am ever amazed that you would give yourself over to tabernacle with us, to come down and reside right in the middle of our situation, that you would be willing to come right out onto the battle. Sometimes the battle, I'm victorious like Abraham, but more often than not, I am defeated. And yet your willingness is all about coming to where I'm at. It doesn't have anything to do with my worthiness. Thank you, Lord, for being our king of righteousness. Thank you, Lord, for being the king of peace in our situation. Father, praise you for being willing to commune with us. I lift all this up in Jesus' name. Amen. We're going to have um, Rob and Ben are going to come forward and pass out communion. If you consider yourself a believer in Jesus Christ, if you've confessed with your mouth and you believe in your heart that he is your Lord, then I want to make sure you know that communion here is for you. Once they pass that out, we'll observe and take the elements together.